Happy Shannon's buddy, right? We met last year. You drove me and my brother back from Palm Springs. That's <laughs> right. We hired another wheelman. I spent six months in jail. My brother, he got himself killed. I got this sweet job coming up. How about this? Shut your mouth. I'll kick your teeth down your throat and I'll shut it for you. This is In The Cut and I'm Jesse. I'm joined by Aaron today. We are going to talk about the 2011 film Drive. If you haven't seen it, you can go to inthecut.org to see all the different ways you can watch it right now. And I'd recommend you do so because the format we have here involves not only spoilers, but pretty much just taking the movie apart. So you will have more fun if you join us after you've seen it. So with that, let's get down to it. So I watched the movie Drive uh, with our friend Henry. Uh Uh-huh. And uh, you know our friend Henry. Oh, I know our our friend friend. Henry. (laughs) Yeah, I... Had him, you know. I didn't really enjoy the movie this time, but uh, it was a fun. It was a fun movie to pick apart, and I really, you know, when we were done, I really thought I got it. You know, I got what the movie was. You know, what what the intention was, what what the themes were, and then I talked to Henry about it, and uh, he had a totally different and almost almost opposite read of it than I did. I thought that might be a good jumping off point. Well, let's go into that interpretation because sometimes something like that can speak to the scope of the movie. And a movie that doesn't give easy answers can often have differing interpretations. But other times it's just because the movie was just too vague to even pin down and and was unsuccessful in that way is why people are taking it differently. But I mean, Henry's, how Henry took the movie, I mean, he took it as a very traditional narrative arc and a very traditional uh, character arc where our protagonist um, Mr. Scorpion uh, Drive Man I think was his name Um, in the credits his name was Driver, the driver but you know Henry really read him as he fell in love and had emotions and slowly became a real human being like the song said in a very literal way Right, and you know I think that's a totally valid read and that's really there and the movie is in a lot of ways really has that really traditional narrative structure but um i i didn't feel like we didn't have any data points as to who you know his character actually was ever at any point in the movie what we saw of the character was almost entirely a mask you know his uh, you know kind of mask of coolness you know i mean there's possibility of a, of a dynamic character going on underneath but you know i don't think we're ever given enough character data points to really uh to really say so what, what is your take you want to have a third take on the movie i kind of think that i see both of those but i think that the movie that's happening is within kind of the framework of expectation set up by the movie that Henry saw. Yeah, yeah. I, uh... And in fact, it's almost made explicit in, in one scene. And, and we're kind of jumping around chronologically in the movie, but they, you know, they buy the 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 race car for the driver to drive. Mm-hmm. So the mobster, Bernie, he, he's describing the, the backstory of him and the, and the mechanic. And he says, the way we met was I used to make movies. 
and that was in the 80s. They were action films, sexy stuff. Mm-hmm. One critic even called them European, <laughs> right? And so, like, Drive is a is a movie that we're watching by a Danish director that is completely, like, fits the bill for that, ostensibly. Like, that's the framework that the movie's taking place in. And it's funny that it's spelled out, like, almost explicitly in that scene. I think that has to have been deliberate. Yeah, and I mean, I, th- I think a, a ton of thematic stuff really is you know just at some point in the movie just just said pretty much the subtext of the film is all all pretty upfront before we get into it do you want to do our first sponsor um who's who's sponsoring us this week so this week our sponsor is um the Oregon Lottery from whom I've bought two or rather three scratch off lottery tickets hooray the first the first two are big catch and jungle gym which we've done several times before and the third one is this $2 scratch-off lottery ticket, and it's a, like, Bill Plimpton-esque drawing of all these people uh, hovering around a table full of gifts, and you scratch off the whole table. It's a gigantic thing. Let's save that one for the end. In the meantime, let's do Jungle Jim and Big Catch. Do you want Jungle Jim again, as is your traditional uh, scratch-off oh, yeah. lottery ticket? going for the hippos. All right, hippos, here we come. I used to really drag this out, but then I listened to it and realized, I mean, the <laughs> part of what's funny to me about doing this is that it's literally the most boring possible thing you could do on the radio <laughs> is scratch off something that's a purely visual thing. It would be a good time for like clever jokes and windy banter if we were clever and witty. I think it's funnier just to drive home the fact that we're not. <laughs> okay. The first animal I scratched off was a unicorn, but unfortunately there were no more unicorns. There's only one. But there were three tortoises. Oh, I like tortoises. You scratched off three tortoises and one. I a found dollar. a tortoise recently, and it um, uh, peed on me. How many dollars? You caught a. Wait, my story is not as interesting as yours. You <laughs> caught a tortoise. Uh huh. A real one in real life. A real, tor- real live tortoise. And it peed on you. And it peed on me. It did. Huh. Mm-hmm. Big catch is the other one we got here. And I won nothing. Sweet. Well, that's out of the way. do hit a couple points in the plot before I dig too deeply into what I think is the soul or maybe soul is the right word but probably not more like the hub of the movie okay which is the driver character yeah I didn't have any interest at all in the plot and I think well let Um, me let me start here but yeah if you were to take the first ten and a half minutes meaning the beginning of the movie to the until the opening credits as a standalone short film I think it. W- I, I really think it would be a perfect film. It's so artfully constructed and shot and paced, and it's so it hooks me so deeply immediately into the movie. It's so successful yeah. for me. It's captivating. It's um, and there's a lot of reasons that I think it works. And and uh, one is that um, from the moment he pulls up outside the heist, 
there's not a single exterior shot. Every shot is from inside of the car mm-hmm. for the entire thing, including the heist, which means that the entire heist takes place off camera, obviously. You know, that is uh, such a huge part and uh, such an intentional part of the movie throughout is just, I mean, perspective and what is not shown uh, than, than what is. Yeah, it, yeah. I mean, perspective is, is what the movie hinges on in a way. It's an extremely, like, tense and kind of enthralling sequence that's ostensibly like a car chase, basically. I mean, it's the closest kind of movie trope I can think of to compare it to. But it starts with him driving one block and then just pulling over mm-hmm. and then sitting in the car unmoving, you know, for like a minute and then pulling out. There's this kind of like playing with the pace of the sequence that's so really excellently done. Um, I can't think of any movie that's had a sequence like this. Maybe Bullet, like the beginning of the like famous car chase in Bullet, has a little bit of that kind of like slowing and ramping and slowing and ramping. It really reminded me of, have you seen uh, The French Connection? I haven't. Actually, The French Connection and also, uh, oh God, what was it? Uh, the Naked City. Both had these really great foot chase scenes mm. that kind of had had that kind of really interesting pacing. And I, I felt like that was almost even referencing or drawing on either of those movies or I'm there's two there's two things I took away from this opening um on a rewatch of the movie kind of knowing the rest of the context of the movie in which this takes place one is it draws a really great fundamental outline of the character of the driver where if it's ever going to be an option he wants things to go smoothly and without mm-hmm. tension and without escalation and without conflict but and yet when when called upon it's explosive. It's, you know, there's a scene where he's sitting across the the stoplight from the police car. He hears on the radio that the police car is identifying him and he just waits. There's a little bit of tension there because mm-hmm. it's not quite too late. But as soon as the light turns green, it's it's pretty much over. And and that's kind of a theme obviously carried through the movie. The other is that it lays the groundwork for this idea that he is always working on more than one level at a time. Hmm. And the and the example is that even from the phone call he receives, even before he's in the car, he has the basketball game on television and then he has the basketball game playing in the background of the entire mm-hmm. chase sequence and then it pays off so unexpectedly and beautifully. Mm-hmm. And it's great because a basketball game you can't predict exactly the time it's going to end without knowing how the plays are going, how out-of-bounds are happening, and how the timeouts are happening and stuff. He's timing the entire chase to to collide with the end of the game in this exact way that allows him to just leave the whole thing behind in the, in the beautiful way he does. I think I really think the first ten and a half minutes are like a perfect movie. Yeah, I kind of wanted to watch that movie that... <laughs> just keep watching that movie. Yeah. Okay, go back to one thing you said. Um, yeah. When you said that, like, the thing about the characters that he really, you know, always wants things to go smoothly. I don't, I don't necessarily think that that is entirely true, or at least there's, um, that's definitely there as a big part of him, but some other part of him. And you, you know, you, you really don't ever get a sense of, of, of who he is, is really waiting for things to get fucked up. And, you know, I mean, I feel like a really strong sense of this guy has a, you know, a strong death wish. Um, hmm. You know, there's never any reason given that he is a criminal. 
Um, you know, he's not doing it out of necessity. He is a successful Hollywood stuntman. You know, right? He has three jobs in this movie. He's like <laughs> he's like this world class, like revered mechanic, a Hollywood stuntman. Yeah, and right. So you know, you, you get the sense that, or at least I did, that um, you know, if if he is if he is a criminal, it's not out of necessity. It's for the thrill of it, or for or maybe he does, you know, have some reason he needs billions of dollars or. This character could be anybody, but, and also just having someone who is, you know, crashes cars for a living is also a pretty strong, if you want to indicate something about his, a reckless character. Sure. And then I think that, you know, you do get a strong tension between those two things in trying to figure out who this guy is. And I think with every aspect of his character, it's a very, there is a counterpoint. You know, I think, um, you know, every time you see him break break his mask and you know, break his cool it's you know either through terrifying violence or with him just having a very sweet smile <laughs> except for the i think the one other time you see him break you know a, i think a, i mean a super key moment and a very telegraphed moment is just when he's you know watching tv uh, with the kid and he's you know I, I forget what the exact line was but he's watching a show about sharks and he's like the kid's like well, the shark is a bad guy and he's like how do you know he's a bad guy sometimes people aren't what they look like yes i love that that's that's a key key i think point in the movie and what what happens is the driver says is he a bad guy and the kid says well he's a shark right just look at him of course he's a bad guy <laughs> and and the driver doesn't respond he just stares at the screen for a really long time. Yeah, but he does register something, and it's one of the few moments where right. so many sh shots, I mean, half the movie is shots of that guy just not <laughs> reacting to things. Uh, yeah, a really interesting thing about, I mean, not even about his character, but about how his you know character is presented is um, this, the structure. I mean, it really, you know, he is the protagonist he is central to the film but it's really shot he's not he's never the point of view character and and it's you know it really made me wish that i kind of knew a little more about you know actual shooting and editing technique and what they were doing it's almost always shot as other people seeing him it's it's almost as if whoever else whoever is not him in the scene is the protagonist for that moment in how the camera treats him. Huh. There's so many moments where so, I mean, or at least I feel so intentionally the camera not showing us what he's seeing. Um, a moment, like, I think the first time he shoots someone, uh, there's no, we don't cut to the shot, which you see in every, every time anyone shoots someone in a movie, you cut to the shot of the guy being shot. And the camera just stays on him and just, and stays on him. Mm-hmm. Uh, not reacting it's really it doesn't want to show you even when you get a pov shot during a car chase it's not the driver's pov over the wheel it's the car's pov right <laughs> and even that's pretty rare it's usually from the passenger seat to the driver or from the it's back seat. almost always in the passenger seat yeah so one idea that storytelling and like in Hollywood especially has taken from existentialism is this idea that of a character being defined specifically by their actions 
And that can be taken to the extreme and often is uh, of a character only really coming into meaningful real existence by the catalyst of a specific critical action that they take. And in, in like writing in, in, in uh, Camus, this is uh, Mursault in killing the Arab in the book, The Stranger. And uh, in Taxi Driver, this is Travis Bickle going on a, like a murderous rampage in the whorehouse. And these characters are really only come to really be in these in these moments, these catalytic moments. But I thought that the difference, like the difference between a character like Travis Bickle and a character like the driver in this movie is that Travis Bickle is a moral absolutist in a really morally ambiguous world. And even though his judgment of right and wrong is really skewed and fucked up um, and his actions aren't necessarily heroic in that movie... Um, he's, he's compelled to them by an absolutist perspective on what's right and what's wrong. And in that way, he's like every superhero in every superhero movie where drive has a point at, at which it's a point in the elevator. And it's a scene I want to talk more about, but that's the scene that the director of the movie has said this is where it turns into a superhero movie. Huh. And it's an extreme act of violence, but two things. One is that his situation is like the opposite of Travis Bickle's, where he's in a world where everybody is unambiguously a good guy or a bad guy, and he's really morally ambiguous. <laughs> um, God, there's so much of that just entire inversions of tropes. Like, it's such an inverted movie. I feel like it's almost, you know, a movie that takes place in the second person <laughs> and he he doesn't even seem to have a notion of right and wrong i mean in some ways he does but but when he acts it seems to be like dispassionately like even when it's when it's righteous or when it's brutal it's really like br uh, separate he's like he's he's not even hardly present you didn't get like a, a heavy I mean, a few scenes, I got a heavy sense of him enjoying violence. I don't know if that... When we had talked about this movie before we rewatched it together, um, I had remembered him as being someone who was revealed to be really sociopathic and uh, kind of amoral in a way by the end of the movie. And that that was kind of a big reveal, like because you had been projecting these aspects of heroism and, and uh, you know, cowboy-like you know, reserve, but secretly the, you know, a heart of gold type of thing onto him, which he didn't turn out to have. He turned out to be a crazy sociopath. In this viewing, I didn't really feel that way, but I felt more like, I think a better analysis of this character would be that he's like a, has a, like a spectrum disorder. Like he's not amoral, but I think that he is incapable or has huge difficulty of even understanding like empathy with other human beings. I think it's revealed to to be the case that he just doesn't make meaningful connections with people. I, I don't know if that's true. I mean, I feel like it's almost, I mean, it's the reverse is that, you know, we're projecting that also because, I mean, because the audience is never 
given any empathy for this character. I mean, that's actually something I was going to say a while back when you were talking about the difference between him and Travis Bickle. I mean, I, th- I think the difference between him and Travis Bickle is we were, you know, very explicitly made to empathize with Travis Bickle's, you know, kind of why that movie is so powerful. Even though his motivations are wrong, we, we see his motivations and we see how he works. And uh, just with Mr. Driver Scorpion Man, um, I mean, there's, there's just no no way to really have empathy with that character um, that you don't bring yourself. I mean, you never know what his motivations are. I think it is spelled out that that in some ways that that he just doesn't have the same kind of intuitive human connection and it's in that scene where we were just talking about where he's watching the movie with the kid and the kid says well he's a bad guy just look at him can't you tell and he's just kind of stuck trying to figure that out or there's an earlier interaction the first time he comes into the to the his neighbor's apartment with the wife the wife and the kid um and the kid puts on like a halloween mask <laughs> and he looks at the kid and just says, scary. <laughs> like he's answering a quiz question. Huh. Like he doesn't have any emotional reaction to it. He just says, scary. That's that's an interesting take. I, mean, I really felt like, you know, I mean, his flat affect really was supposed to be a mask and really was to be was supposed to be a surface thing that did break at times. But yeah, I mean, yeah, reading him as on the spectrum would be kind of a whole different movie i think that a really intriguing way of uh, a question to ask is how this character was received outside of the united states because i think we have this really ingrained mythology around this um again like clint eastwood style silent lawbringer archetype and i'm wondering if the the moments where violence really explodes out of out of this character are as surprising in other countries as they were to me if people with a different set of cultural assumptions even felt that surprised that he turned out to be kind of like uh maybe devoid of empathy that's not the right word but um capable of that right because i think i think that in some cultures i mean without the same set of assumptions as me then that character would obviously have been dangerous from the beginning yeah and um if it was if you met that guy in real life, uh, you know, <laughs> if it wasn't media, yeah, obviously that guy's, a, you, know, <laughs> you don't fuck with him. Uh, cause, uh, yeah, I mean, that flat affect is actually really scary in real life. Right. Whose money do I have? <laughs> don't worry, they're gonna come get it. No, no. Called him. Somebody called Nino. One interesting thing for me um, was how that movie is about LA. Hmm. How it used, you know, I feel in the same way that the movie sort of echoed the character in its coolness and its uh, non empathy and its, you know, lack of close up shots and its, uh, yeah, weird distance there there was a kind of third echoing of that theme in i mean i mean definitely i mean there was those interstitial shots of la those just like sparkly hdr just shots of um gorgeous shots i thought and then that la 
uh, that L.A. is not in the movie at all. I mean, that L.A. is never shown. Huh. And uh, and you totally see the other L.A. And and I, I think, you know, that really echoes the theme of a cool surface with something else going on at, at the core. I mean, and it's interesting because you don't see that L.A. very often. And it's, you know, interesting that it's not made by an American. It was really weird that all those characters were white. It felt like they should have been Hispanic. And I think in the book, at least, like, I think the woman was um, Hispanic. A lot of the shots, I mean, they I think were her Hispanic neighborhoods. And, um, and that's, I mean, that's a kind of another thing. I mean, when you talk about the other L.A. Um, and um, I don't know, this is maybe a little racist, but when you think of the intersection of car culture and crime culture... <laughs> hmm. You know, this character just feels like he's written as, you know, a 50-year-old Mexican dude. Not a... <laughs> I think it... I mean, I think everything in the movie feels super intentional, and the casting feels super intentional and super weird. Ron Perlman, Brian Cranston, and Christina Hendricks are all on current TV shows as super iconic characters. They were all super recognizable, for sure. Yeah, hugely iconic and probably hugely iconic in the audience that this film is aimed at. And they're they're all really cast against those characters. You know, I mean, Katrina Hendricks being kind of trashy, Brian Cranston being weak-willed, and uh, Albert Brooks being a, you know, <laughs> evil fucker are all sort of the opposite of what we know those people are. Yeah, almost every character, yeah, just felt like it was written for a very different physical type, a very different, and was cast, you know, with that idea of that you, I mean, that you don't know that what's on the surface doesn't reflect, that that HDR shot of the skyscrapers isn't what uh, L.A. really is. One of the things I thought was really brilliant when I was watching it is the possibility of his humanity is really starting to dawn on you in the audience. It's when he's... Um, he's giving the, the girl, his neighbor, and the kid the ride home. And it's playing this song called A Real Hero <laughs> <laughs> by this band called College, which is so fucking, like, cloying. It's so <laughs> on the nose for for what the scene is about that it's almost making it clear that it's satire. But it's not quite. And I think what the movie did really well for a lot of the movie was walk that line. It's not out and out a satire, like a gag, like jokey riffing on tropes of that style. But it's also not really meant completely seriously, it doesn't think, seem like. And I think that that's as close as the movie gets to really achieving that balance in a nice way. It's, it's like the song is explaining this character to us in a really obvious and inane way. <laughs> And, you know, I mean, I don't know if you know the background of this song, but this song was written by this band for the um, the pilot who ditched the American Airlines aircraft in the Hudson River. <laughs> this actual literal hero from real life, the song was written about him. And they're using this song to describe this guy who has done absolutely nothing heroic in this movie, <laughs> except that the song contains these lines like, he's a real human being, right? Which is hilarious because he's obviously this one-dimensional, like, paper cutout at this point in the movie. And part of my recollection of this movie before I rewatched it was that that was, like, a perfect stroke of, like, 
misdirection and mm-hmm. and that it was setting up a really excellent reveal that he was hardly even a real human being in the first place. <laughs> and, and I think that they really spoiled that because in the in the in the climax of the movie they use the song again right. and there's no way to take it in that context except really sincerely. And then it just is it's not like hilariously inane, it's just inane. Right. I mean that was my take was that they used it earlier to con- contrast it later. Hmm. Um, or some, I don't know. I mean, I could believe that was the intent, but it that w- did not work at all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's that. And I mean, yeah, the, just the fact that that song is just so fucking dumb. <laughs> uh, and, but, and, it, and that, you know, I mean, all of this music is just like this bubblegummy synth pop. Yeah. Oh, something else right. I and just it, remembered right. about the the score through the whole thing is so much of the score, it sounds like they're actually playing the score through a wall and recording the score <laughs> on the other side of the wall to get this muffled. And this is another way that it just feels like the movie is just distancing itself from me. Um, right. It's one step removed from the audience. And and I think it, I mean, it's a lot of it sounds like that's literally what they're doing. I mean, it could be you know just a you know some kind of digital echo effect but uh but and but not the whole thing just like a few tracks in the mix have this really muffled feel to them there's a hundred thousand streets in this city you don't need to know the route you give me a time and a place i give you a five minute window anything happens in that five minutes and i'm yours no matter what Anything happens a minute either side of that, and you're on your own. Do you understand? There's so many moments when uh, you could have made a character so much stronger with a different cut, they just avoided. Um, I remember when we were first kind of meeting uh, Albert Brooks, and he's talking to Mr. Driver Scorpion Man, and and every time Albert Brooks like says a big intense line instead of showing him say it it cuts to mr driver not reacting you remember the scene in the strip club yeah i mean there's an interesting thing is it comes pretty quickly after the scene where he threatens christina Hendricks, and um and when you see that scene for the first time your assumption is like He's just threatening her. He's not actually going to torture her. But then you get, you know, just a little, you know, maybe seven minutes later, you get the scene where he is very obviously really does want to torture this guy. And that kind of throws a little light on, uh, you know, maybe you're just assuming he doesn't want to torture this woman. The way he he's like in a hotel his body on top of hers with his hand over her mouth the mm-hmm. way it is seems extremely like to meant to call to mind the idea of rape i was thinking of the earlier scene that had kind of seeded this idea of him having this like relentless you know no middle ground attitude uh where a guy he he's in a diner drinking up a cup of yeah. coffee and a guy from an earlier heist comes over and says like hey that was really good what happened last time i mean i got a new thing lined up do you want to work with me and he just says like i'm going to fucking knock your teeth down your throat <laughs> just completely 
like with with no warning yeah and no sense that it's that's an idle threat you realize like this is just how he would have reacted to that mm-hmm. stimulus no matter what <laughs> that was definitely that was a scene i brought up when i was you know henry's view that the violent the violent his violent nature was something he acquired due to circumstance throughout the film i mean i think i think that was very explicitly showing that absolutely you know <laughs> Yo, that's his, he will fucking knock people's teeth out. Right, right. Just because it, he he does not want to work it out. Mm-hmm. So there's a scene that the movie, you know, roughly two thirds of the way through, really, really pivots on. And it's a pretty normal construction for a movie to have a really pivotal scene that kind of kicks off what we'd consider the third act of mm-hmm. the film. I think the whole movie it has a very traditional structure. If you were to just, I think, break it down scene by scene. There's a couple of reasons it's unique for what it is. And what leads into it is uh, the driver and the girl, the neighbor, get into the elevator together. And it's a mirror of, and I only realized this the most recent time I watched it, the scene where they met. Mm-hmm. And now they're in that same elevator And that's going the last, down. last time she sees him. And it's the last time she sees him, which, which makes the kiss that he gives her before they part really meaningful because I think it's clear once you know how the rest of the movie plays out that he knows that's the last time he'll see her. So he's not kissing her to start a relationship uh, the way in most movies a kiss at that point would represent. He's kissing her goodbye. And it really is driven home by the, the shot right after he kisses her because he knows he's going to have to or, or he believes and, and, and intends to deliver this incredible act of violence, but he really doesn't want to. He, he, he longingly, after the kiss, stares at her for a, several seconds before it, it, it turns into what it turns into. And, and it both emphasizes the fact that he knows it's a goodbye kiss, but also, I think, calls back to a few seconds earlier where... The driver knows that she's really furious with him, and it's the worst possible time to bring this up. But he asks her, before they get on the elevator together, if she'll run away with him, basically. Like, Mm -hmm. I think he he really, really has a strong sense of what's coming. And he doesn't know that it's going to be there in the elevator when the doors open, but he knows it's going to be there very soon. And even though I'm sure he knows, I, I honestly think he knows... It's, she's so pissed and she's really like been enamored with him the entire movie up to this point. He still has to try. He has to ask. We can just take this in a different direction and run off together. Is that something that you will do with me? Was that something you'll commit to with me? And of course she's furious and she slaps him in the face and then the rest of the movie plays out the way it needs to. Which, which is also a very traditional plot. I mean that's you know that that moment where things could be all right. Right. Is, you know, the Romeo and Juliet or... Yeah. And it ties back to the beginning, what I was talking about, where both with he he would prefer things to work out and not have any stress. But um, when, it's, when he's called upon to take dramatic action, he takes extremely dramatic action. I, I think at that point, I kind of disagree in what you said earlier. Um I think he really wanted, I think there was a part of him that really wanted to stomp that guy's head in, Hmm. you know, and I I think it was definitely at odds with, you know, the other 
part of him that really did want to make it work with this woman. And, you know, you do see the regret at giving up the one thing, but then you see him getting really into the other thing. And I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. I mean, this was another thing in my discussion with Henry was that he was, you know, was that he was not a violent person and he was just, you know, the times when he is violent, he is forced into it in some way and he's, it's only reaction. But God, I, mean, I, I definitely saw in pretty much every scene with violence, like a sense that he liked to hurt people. I think you're right. I really do. And and it's something that was lost on me, I think, when I was watching the scene. You know, that scene where, where he explodes into violence and he's stomping the guy's head and it cuts to a shot of his boot literally crushing the guy's skull. Mm-hmm. And in a movie where he's forced to do the violence he does and does it unwillingly, that flipping the camera to show the result of his action is so distracting. I mean, it's so gruesome and sudden and violent that it completely... And it's also one of the few times the movie does that. Yeah. Shows what he's seeing. It's, you know, I mean, it's so intent on never doing that that the moments when it does show a, a point of view shot... It could, because it's it's immediately becomes what you remember about that scene. So if it if it doesn't key into the theme of the scene, then the director has made a huge misstep by putting it in there because it overwhelms your other emotions of the scene. Mm-hmm. But if, like you're saying, it actually fits into the theme of the scene, then it's really well done, I think, because it's so impactful. Everyone I've talked to has had really strong reactions to it. I just had, I mean, the movie just never engaged me at all on any kind of visceral or emotional level. Like it didn't, like even the really tense scenes just weren't, I mean, it made such a point not to engage me that hmm. fuck you movie. I'm not going <laughs> to engage you back <laughs> or whatever. Uh, but uh, I mean, that brings us to another point in the movie and it's the scenes of violence, right? Which I think were technically really incredible. It's not, I mean, the, the violence wasn't like movie violence. It was, uh, but it also wasn't at all like real life violence. It was strongly overplayed and uh, overly graphic. And, uh, you know, the guns still made loud booms and there was still head explosions and stuff. But um, the suddenness of everything. Hmm. I, I wasn't, I was never engaged uh, with the film, so I never. You know, it, I never felt stakes to the violence. I mentioned before that that elevator scene is where the director has said in an interview where he he believes the movie turns into a superhero film, mm-hmm. but it doesn't feel like a superhero film <laughs> to me at all. What it feels like, and I think deliberately, is a slasher film. Oh yeah, I mean definitely. With and the... starting with that scene. When he he's puts, pulling on the, mask. on the mask, he's stepping up to the window and looking in and then walking away. <laughs> There's the scene where he n- runs them off the road and then they're they're in darkness and it's it's long and long. And then yeah, the light, headlights turn on in the background and they sh- suddenly the car's ramming him. It, it, it really, it really, really turns into a slasher film in every way. <laughs> yeah. And it's even the way it's shot just changes dramatically. Yeah. And the color palette changes dramatically. Right, and the setting changes dramatically. And I, and I didn't even think of that, but Definitely. It, but it really is to a horror movie, and really kind of a horror movie from Ron Perlman's perspective. Right. <laughs> you know, he is all of a sudden the point of view character, and uh, it gets re- it dives really deeply into that motif for sure. It's hard. It, 
<laughs> this is a movie I walked out of the first time I saw it, not sure if I liked it or not. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, historically, movies that I've walked out of, not sure whether, well, I mean, not walked out of right. a movie, movies that I've left after they were over, not sure how I felt about them, have turned out to be movies that I've really, really loved in general. <laughs> like Brick is my go-to example for this. Man, Brick I loved right off the bat. With Drive, I don't know that I came around the way I typically do. Man, I really hated watching that movie. Drive? <laughs> I don't know if I've emphasized that, <laughs> but I really don't enjoy that movie as a movie. <laughs> well, I think we can leave it right there. Aaron, thanks so much for having this conversation with me. Hooray! I'm going to scratch off the last scratch-off ticket here. Mm-hmm. Our sponsor, uh, the $2 gift grab Oregon Lottery scratch-off ticket. So I think the theme of this, if if I'm coming to understand it correctly, is it's a uh, like a white elephant gift swap. Mm-hmm. So it's a bunch of shitty gift ideas. Ironic dildo? No, no ironic dildo. They didn't know us well enough. I think doesn't every white elephant party have ironic dildo? Pickled eggs. Pickled eggs are a great gift. Chatter teeth, ugly sweater, snow bunny, fruitcake, musical tie, TV dinner of the month, wizard for a day. <laughs> that seems like the greatest possible present. I don't know what that's doing on this. Rubber chicken, garden gnome, one sock, and voodoo doll. Doesn't seem like we have two of any of those. So that's a bummer. Hmm. Next episode, I'm going to be talking with Aaron about the 2006 film This Is England. It's, um, you know, I don't think we've really talked about a movie I liked yet on this thing. <laughs> Have we? Have we I talked about know. any good movies? Probably not. Um, Who likes good movies? <laughs> yeah, so here's an experiment. Um, I don't know if I'll really have anything to say about a movie that I enjoy. Um, because, you know, I just get my enjoyment out of being a grumpy asshole. Yeah, it will be an experiment. And this is part of one of the things that we had mentioned trying was one of us kind of pick a movie and and the other one who's maybe less familiar with it could kind of ask questions about it or whatever. So the onus might be more on you than usual for this one. (laughs) I mean, well, I guess I might have opinions. I mean, because it was it's definitely a really interesting movie. And um, what like you said, one of the better, better ones that we've uh, tackled so it's going to be a good one to watch and check out with us. Yes. Cool. And as always, to see the different ways we've collected for you to watch This Is England right now, go to our site at inthecut.org. Thanks for joining us, and I hope to talk to you next time. Bye.